Welcome to Scientific mm. Utopia. My name's Shankar. My name's Karthik. And we aim to take medicine to a higher level by integrating patient-centred care with all types of sciences and humanities. We want to iron out the differences between different subjects and merge them into one. This is for polymaths who feel their A-level curriculum or whatever they are studying is confining their creativity and intellect. So a little bit about us. So me and Karthik, we're studying the same A-levels, maths, further maths, biochem, and the cheeky EPQ on the side. You know how it is. But aside from that, my personal interest when it comes to medicine is neurology. Because I guess since I was interested in medicine, I thought I'd volunteer at a local care home. And there was a high proportion of the patients with Alzheimer's, which really spurred me on to reading more in detail. And it just led me to the whole concept of neurology and the maths underlining the neuronal circuits and the whole philosophical side of consciousness is just what inspires me. Anyways, Karthik, what, what interests you when it comes to medicine? So my first kind of um, encounter with medicine was because of my family history of kind of cancer. And hence, like from a young, uh, from an early age, I always wanted to know why, what kind of, what caused cancer. And that kind of, um, that's what stemmed my uh, interest in oncology and how and why cancer developed in people and how it spread and how tumours, benign tumours could spread to different parts of the body. And this made me research, this made me just research into the different types of cancers and and just um, how they affect people, what type of treatments are given. And this also made me um, uh, do, an e do, um, do, do an EPQ on cancer stem cells. Um, and all of this research surrounding cancer is um, one of the main kind of uh, topics of discussion in the medical world. And I think it's one of the, like the, the future for medicine and, and hence I'm just really interested in the topic. And, and, and it was one of the main contributing factors of me choosing medicine as a career. And today we are joined by Hashim. So Hashim's not directly interested in medicine. He's more interested in computer science and applied mathematics. He actually wants to do it at Cambridge, which I know, rather than just practical computer science, it's also very hypothetical and very applied mathematics. And he wants to take it to a more humanitarian level. He wants to use computer science and his knowledge of further maths to save lives. Anyways, Hashim, introduce yourself. Hey, my name's Hashim and I really was interested in computer science from a really young age and recently with developments in AI and computer vision, the applications in medicine have been unlocked, one could say, and so into the future you can expect there to be a lot more AI used in medicine and I feel that this will really develop the field of medicine and help speed up processes that nowadays take a long time to complete and just essentially save more lives across the world. 100% man. I mean, AI is basically what this first podcast is about because I was talking to a consultant and it was, I wrote an article on biocalculus and I didn't really go into AI, I was talking about consciousness. But he was like, we want to be a part of this big And he said, if you're interested in neural networking, go for it. And I know you're a pro at that. So do you want to give like, sort of in baby terms, terms sort of not because i think our audience could understand it but give an outline of neural nets so an idea of first of all what a neural net is is it's a collection of nodes that are interconnected which are the basis of most ai today so if you think about an ai what it does is essentially takes a series of inputs which could be for example an image and then a series of all of its pixels either as a list or as a matrix mm. and then it inputs these into the various nodes in the first layer of the neural network which then gets filtered all the way to the end of the neural network to a desired output which could be that there is a dog in the picture or that the AI recognizes that there's something wrong with the patient's uh, scan for example. So do you want to talk about forward propagation and then the whole learning process with the backward propagation? Right, so with neural networks, the way that they learn is by initially uh, feeding forward 
data through the network. So in the initial layer, which is like the first layer of nodes, that is the input layer. And so you apply the inputs to that layer. And then as the inputs, as each node is interconnected to the next layer of nodes, each, each connection has a weight. So the value of the initial node, which is the input node, so let's say it's a one, is multiplied by a weight of the connection, which could be 0 0.5, for example. And then on, on each node, there's also a bias. So that is added on to the value. So 0 0.5 adds some bias to say the bias is one, which leaves an activation of 1.5. That activation is then added to all of the other connections incoming to the next node in the next layer. And this is repeated recursively throughout the network until you get the desired output. And forward propagation is just the name given to this process, which happens in computers really fast due to advances in hardware, which allow for faster matrix multiplication. And what the way that the algorithm learns is using a technique called back propagation, which uses multivariable calculus. And what it does is essentially finds the difference in the desired output from the current output. And that is called the cost and it does so using a cost function and if you think about it with all the inputs then you can create an, uh, a really large input space which has a lot of dimensions and essentially what you are doing when you're uh, doing back propagation which is when you're working your way back through the network is you're finding a local minimum on that uh, on the on the cost function in the um, multi-dimensional plane. So essentially you find a local minimum which allows the network to be even more efficient than it was before and therefore better at identifying whatever its purpose was. So let's say the network was used to identify tumors in scans, then over time as more input scans are input and the desired outputs are given into the network, the neural network will be able to adjust the weights and biases of each connection in each node to slowly become better and better at finding uh, if there is a tumour in those scans. I mean, that's a brilliant explanation. One one thing, because we discussed this, right, like a whole analogy to explain the whole weights and biases, and we discussed, um, you know, the equation, like the linear equation of a straight line on a graph. So your weight could be the M, the gradient, and your bias could be the plus C. Indeed. Yeah. And so, yeah, go on. I'll sorry, quickly. I just had a quick question, actually. So you were talking about these neural networks and things like that. Um, and I think this kind of ties in quite nicely with a book I'm currently reading, actually, called Connectome. So mm. which is basically like scientists want to, like, you know, map the, the whole of the, like, the neural connections within our brains. Um, how do you think like this um, kind of AI and like neural networks, that kind of field, how do you think it ties in with like, connectomics and like how we want to map our brains and its neural network how do you think it kind of ties in with that well there's a big overlap really because the idea that neural if you think look at the name neural network that comes from neuron which is yeah the central yeah. the central cell in the brain right so the initial neural networks were based off the idea was that they were trying to base them off of how the brain worked but of course the brain is a lot more complex than that so in a regular normal neural network you have several layers like one layer of nodes which yeah. is like a you can you can like imagine it as a series of nodes and then it's all all those nodes are connected to all the nodes in the next layer but yeah. as we've slowly gone on in time neural networks have got a bit more complex than that and you get convoluted neural networks which are where nodes are connected not only to the ones in the next layer but to other nodes elsewhere in the network which yeah leads to better performance in these algorithms and is more like the structure of neurons in the brain and this is what so if if we could somehow manage to fully map the neurons in the brain and then and they have done this before but with uh, less complex brains such as a worm yeah and they've managed to map that into a neural network and then the the ai eventually did turn out to act like a worm did so it is possible to do that. And the closer we do get to real brain structures, the more efficient you can expect AI to be, really. What benefits do you think they'll have for just medicine and even other kind of fields? 
for for medicine specifically it would allow for a faster diagnosis of different things because with with different fields like radiography and stuff like that where you have scans and images and even with electrocardiograms you have patterns in data that usually recognized by people who have spent their lives uh, or quite a long time in their lives learning how to identify these patterns and therefore diagnose someone well that could all be automated by ai but there is one danger and that is that when once an ai is trained in today's world we can't really tell what the ai actually is doing whereas with a human you can see that they're breaking the graph down into segments and looking at each one and then seeing oh look there's a bit of data there that's irregular with an ai there's no way to know how it's like getting its result even if it is getting so even if it is getting results that are right it could be that it's just memorized all the information in the in the input data in the input data set and has learned all of the outputs corresponding to that so it could be that for example with a five times table you feed it the first five numbers so one two three four five five times five is 25 and the ai memorizes all of them and it gets so fast it gets faster than a human that does at multiplying them but then once you give it something outside of the original data set let's say six it won't know how to respond and that's a problem that's that's a problem which is like overtraining with neural networks do you think um perhaps me and shankar and i were talking about consciousness and i think you also kind of uh, delved into that kind of before how do you think um do you think we can perhaps uh, bring about fake consciousness if you want into these kind of ai kind of robots and stuff like that do you think that may be possible in the future i think with advances in quantum technology specifically you could expect more more powerful ai but consciousness might be a bit of a stretch seeing as the amount of neurons in the human brain is like an insane number so if you were trying to simulate all of that the computing power needed would be equally insane so if you're thinking about consciousness in the terms of human consciousness that might be a bit of a stretch but scientists could figure out a way computer scientists could figure out a way paired with neuroscientists to, to create a consciousness that might not be human but something else that can like an imitation oh is that what you mean like an imitation of human consciousness yeah like an imi yeah, imitation much... of human consciousness yeah like, yes. Yes. in a yeah. way that's feasible yeah i mean they talk about um, in philosophy zombies when they say zombie they don't mean your Asian zombies from you know hollywood what they mean is they're just like us exactly the same but they're not actually conscious so you can go up to the zombie, right? You can shake his hand. You can ask the zombie, are you conscious? And he'll say yes. But it's not. It's only an imitation of consciousness. So maybe a computer could be just, you know, analogous to a zombie in that sense. It cannot, you know, come to our level of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Consciousness is programmed. It isn't computable. Um, yeah. Our subconscious, that's computable, sure. Um, I think but, we just need more research into like consciousness. We humans like don't really understand. But it also, it also matters how you define consciousness because if yeah. you define it as something that has self-awareness, then it already has that. But then if you define it as something that can do, is self-aware and can do multiple things at the same time, AI today doesn't have that. But the so, idea that uh, in not, computer science not is that we're aiming for a sort of general AI which can do everything that humans can, and that might be a bit of a stretch because although and even if it was even if it was able to do all of these things how would you even know if it was conscious because it would think it would be conscious but would it actually be conscious that's like surely it's not um mathematical if it's not computable because um i was looking at the orchestrated objective reduction theory of consciousness it's um a quantum theory you know quantum explains everything now i got quantum biology explaining <laughs> photosynthesis, um, nuclear fusion in the sun, quantum tunneling, um, DNA mutations, quantum tunneling explains it. So you got quantum is explaining everything now. But but when you think that everything we're experiencing right now, you know, the qualia, the raw sensation of everything, basically proto-conscious moments can be constructed simply from quantum bits, qubits. It's crazy. And quantum mechanics, as we all know, is a mathematical ideology if i'd say so you know what i mean mm -hmm. but if we use a quantum theory to account for consciousness 
we lose the whole essence of maths because according to the theory consciousness is not computable would you would you agree Hashim? like a limitation of consciousness sure sure but yeah essentially yeah i do agree but with quantum computing surely you'd be able to simulate something like that you'd be able to simulate the events that are happening on the quantum level inside microtubules so um, there's a problem maybe you could uh, well okay maybe quantum but this is the whole problem with quantum mechanics is um depicted by penrose you know roger penrose i think i mentioned it to both of you yeah he's a brilliant mm-hmm. sixth, um, and mathematician he's a god basically if i'm gonna say it. <laughs> and he noticed this issue with quantum mechanics um it wasn't actually him who came up with it. He was basically paraphrasing what um, Erwin Schrodinger said in his book. He said that quantum mechanics is a provisional theory. It is provisional. It's not the whole truth. Because there's two parts of quantum mechanics. I mean, me and Karthik discussed this so much. Like, yeah. And the first part is the Schrodinger equation, describing the state of the system. I mean, it's usually a second-order partial differential equation, but you do get um, first-order partial differential. And the second part is essentially the collapsing um, of the wave function, so making a small measurement. The thing is, in the theory, if you have two aspects of the theory, surely they should link. There should be a clear link with them. But between these two, there is no link. So if there's no link, then it's not a purely mathematical theory. So these two on their own, they can explain subconscious. They're not linked. They cannot explain our consciousness, and therefore mathematics cannot explain our consciousness. I think there might be, we just, consciousness in itself, I think, is a bit really something that we really don't understand. Um, Like whatever theories that might come up there, it's just like something insanely thing that humans can't really comprehend. It's great because, um, I talked to you about David Chalmers, right? Who's that, Mummy? Do you remember J- David Chalmers? No, remind me. Okay, so he's a philosopher. Yeah. Great thinker. And he defined this thing with uh, consciousness known as the easy problem and the hard problem. Mm. So the easy problem is what Hashim's going to be a pro at. These whole neuronal networks, yeah. which can be modelled using you know these um ai yeah the whole neuronal network like yeah um, say the area in the brain the fusiform area for recognizing faces which um if you have damage in that you get prosopagnosia that that's an underlying neural circuit um we we almost completely understand the mechanisms behind this but there is more to that than just electrical circuits right yeah because like you, you're a big fan of um, what's his name? Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, and he, he's he's he stretched um Darwinism to basically his own political ideology. <laughs> Good reason. Everything he says is completely plausible, and I agree. Which means that if we have consciousness, it must have come about by natural selection, right? Definitely, Evolution. definitely. Yeah, I think that I think personally, I think due to like evolution, there may. And so, like, earlier organisms, earlier individuals probably had, like, a primitive form of consciousness, if you will, like, which basically enabled them to survive. But their natural selection meant that this kind of could kind of, like, hone in on this kind of a better consciousness. But then the question is, how did that initial consciousness kind of arise? Then, yeah, exactly. That's what um, I don't understand, because it's, it's sort of like, the you know, the chicken and the egg problem, which one came first? It's like, because... Which one came first, higher order reflexes or consciousness? Because evolutionary psychologists, they're like, okay, um, we need consciousness because it gives the animal or whatever organism like a will to survive. You know what I mean? Yeah. A will to survive. It's a respect for itself, which means it must do everything it can to survive. And according to in propagate DNA, obviously, obviously. Yeah. In life's primitive stages, there were stimuli, and then the organisms had to exhibit a response. But I think as time evolved, the stage in between the in, the uh, stimuli and the response became greater and greater, which allowed for time for processing to happen, where we have today, where we can think, look at something, and get stimulus. Yeah, but you just need higher order to survive. Like, if it was just raw survival, 
you don't need qualia. You don't need that raw sensation of, you know, that smell of coffee in the morning. But perhaps the things drink. like the things like um, memory or favorite food, favorite food kind of thing that involves consciousness. And that's like if you're hungry and you know where a thing is, that's not really subconscious, though. Would you say that is? You can just sense it from a reflex, though. Like you, they, that's how zombies would theoretically survive. These philosophical zombies. I I don't think evolutionary theory can account for consciousness, which it can it can account for the progression of consciousness, but not how it first arose. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, this, I, surely, I, I agree. surely conscious conscious beings would have better abilities, so they'd be able to outperform. But don't bacteria? No, there's way more bacterial um, genetic information than human information. Think about their rate of reproduction. And yet, if they have any consciousness at all, I mean, that's another question, isn't it? Yeah, this what, is a whole other question. Yeah. So, think, bacteria are doing way better than us, if you think about it, yeah, according to Richard Dawkins. And yeah, many, according, his, many, his idea of um, success is just the number of individuals, number of, yeah. So, in that sense, it's all bacteria Yeah, consciousness has actually been a disadvantage to us then. So without cons- consciousness, we wouldn't have invented contraception. Because yeah, that's, that's preventing us from propagating our DNA. And I think it would have been a way better, you know, a way better way of evolution occurring if instead of just developing consciousness, we just uh, developed the ability to reproduce way faster. Surely that would propagate our DNA. like. That but, but that's with, assuming Richard Dawkins' um, assumption is true. Yeah, but, yeah, but it, what else is consciousness if it's not evolutionary? What do you think, Ashen? Well, if everyone had... A lot of children in today's world then that would leave to overpopulation and the whole race would probably go extinct because there'd be too much stress on our natural resources so i think it's consciousness evolves, no, I mean. it evolves it evolves as a mechanism by which educated decisions arise as opposed to let's educate yeah. one so if you have consciousness consciousness is based on the idea that you have past experiences and it's not saying that um, natural selection has consciousness that it can predict what's going to happen. Like natural selection is just random, and if it turns out right in our society, it, it works. Like, yeah, there's no way that natural selection could predict overpopulation. Mm. It would have to happen for this to happen. Is the whole? I think I think what we can gain from this conversation, because this has been a really good debate. Yeah. <laughs> I think all we can extract is that we have consciousness. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Um, I'm assuming you guys have consciousness. There's no way of knowing. That's the thing. That like once my like the, my brother when I was younger told me that um, that we may all be robots except for you. But that that's like that's the thing. Everyone else may be robots except for you. Who knows? What's your brother's a young David Chalmers then. I like yeah, that. Right. This tie in with the quantum theory of observation, where the wave function collapses once observed, because that could be that this is, the universe is a simulation and that around you there's a certain like when you look at something only then does it become objective yeah i believe that um oh because that was again richard dawkins one of his views he was reading talking now i think about this again. We, we talked a lot about this um what's that book by oh. loy what's his name counterfeit world it's some uh, i'm not i don't remember the book exactly but I'll go over it again. So it's all about meta simulations. Mm. So there's um there's like three or four programmers, don't know how many, and they're we're the simulation. They made simulation, we're the simulation. Something goes on, goes wrong in our yeah. world. So they go in, right? And then they come they, they and one of the people actually goes into the meta simulation into our world. Yeah. Which um, obviously scientifically doesn't make sense because won't you be subject to the forces that we're subject to and how would you get out you know what i mean there's no way getting out but once he comes back he they realize that they're in a simulation so this is i 100 percent agree with the whole simulation process it's, it's a great theoretical um theoretical thought experiment but maybe 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 it's just science fiction maybe we just maybe we should just say science fiction what do you think how true could it be uh, about the theory that's just theoretical kind of well, if you, I mean, you can simulate things down to an extent. So with consciousness and the human brain, 
I guess we could simulate it to a macro level. Like when I say macro, I don't obviously mean the whole brain. I mean individual neurons. But going any lower than that, that would be that would require an insane amount of computing power. So I think that's what if if you were in a simulation, that would what that would be what gives rise to the idea of a quantum level where there's a occur. Because you're half right about this whole simulation thing. So because if yeah, because if you have like a any simulation, you can only go down to a certain amount. And then it just becomes, it just requires an inordinate amount of power. I mean, I was watching this TED talk by this guy called Adam Seth. He's a great, a great, I don't know what he's doing exactly. I think it's neuroscience, something like that. And he's a genius. And his talk was basically, your brain hallucinates everything you see. And that that, that is kind of right, because linking it to medicine, um, you know, um, after certain car accidents, quadriplegic, quadriplegics, um, after a while, um, they get depressed. And obviously, physicians associated with this, uh, this, they associated the depression with the traumatic experience. You know, if, if you lose your four limbs right, you're going to get depressed. But what they noticed was they're not getting any feedback from their body. Their spine severed, right? So they're not getting any feedback from our body. We do, because we get this thing called uh, proprioceptive feedback. We know where our limbs are. We can we have awareness of our limbs, right? But yeah. they don't get it. So our hallucinations is basically just sensory input from the environment, and then our brain tries to recreate it. And it's the same with that, because they don't get any sensory input from the rest of their body. They just lose contact. So... Is our consciousness deceiving us? Is has it got anything to do with reality? I think it's got more to do with perception of reality. Yeah, at some level, yeah. Because what your brain is telling you, if you look with your eyes, your brain isn't actually telling you how the world is at the exact moment right now. It's telling you how the world will be in a few seconds, in a few maybe microseconds, given the current circumstances. Which that's, lets that's you do things soul. like intercept intercept balls and things because if you were seeing in live time where the ball actually was objectively, you would never be able to intercept it because your reaction time and the time taken to generate the image in your brain would just be too high. So the brain has to accommodate for this and do this mm. into the future. So it it applies what it currently knows about the world and projects this into the future by a few microseconds. You don't notice it, but it happens. And this lets you do things like catch balls. And yeah, so I was thinking about that the other day as well. So like, that's how consciousness could be perception, I guess, as that's, opposed to an objective thing. That's linked to the whole alien thought experiment, you know, um, that, you know, how physicists, some physicists share the view that there must be aliens in the universe, because, you know, one fifth of all planets are Earth-sized. They, um, you know, orbit the sun from a reasonable distance. And since there's a billion times a billion in total, surely should make sense. Thing is, if light, because according to Einstein, obviously information cannot travel faster than light, right? Yeah. Special relativity 101. Yeah. But if it takes that long to travel, then that's that that's not the gal that's not actually the galaxy at the point we see it. That was it, like, let's say, 76 years ago. So you could see a star in the sky, but it might not still be there. It might yeah. have exploded in a supernova. Mm. So sort of like that. But um, I think we're talking about the quantum, whole quantum theory. Why I've linked this to neurology is because it actually occurs at the microtubule level. And I'm thinking, Hashim, could we recreate this? Could we make, could we make um, consciousness using synthetic microtubules well the only way you'd be able to simulate something quantum like that would be to use a quantum system so in a quantum computer maybe but then again quantum computing is a relatively new emerging field and the power of computing quantum computing is low and the environment in which it has to happen is extreme you have to have superconductors oh, which are cool so to like, like um, way more yeah years. near zero kelvin so, yeah, to become applicable to that, it would take a good few years yeah. and a lot more research and a lot more funding. You know how we talk 
the whole quantum biology, DNA mutations, quantum effects happening there. Yeah. And if it can survive in the salty, warm, the salty, warm sea, you know, in our body, surely quantum effects can happen in room temperature, atmospheric pressure. If you think about it, because quantum tunneling is happening in our DNA right now, because a mutation is basically a hydrogen jumping from one base to another. But according to classical mechanics, there is no way that this can actually happen, right? That would take too much energy. It wouldn't be energetically favorable breaking a covalent bond. Where would it get the energy from? If you use quantum tunneling, which is actually predicted by Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism, right? It does work. So I don't get why, you know, they have to simulate quantum effects at near zero Kelvin. Do you know what I mean? What do you think, Arthur? You love your biology. Tell me, how does this work? So I'm baffled. Fully, like, not going to lie. I think the quantum whole quantum concept is like as a whole is kind of quite new and especially its application like biology and stuff. Oh yeah, the application so, of biology. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I, I, um, so wait, so how, how did it, how did you say it worked in muta DNA mutation? So what did, what did, um, what's oh, like the experiment they did? Hmm? They had, um, they cultured it in H2O and yeah. they cultured it in uh, deuterium oxide. Yeah. And I'm not, actually, I don't actually remember how this goes, but, hmm. Something to do, it's probably something to do with the physical aspect of deuterium, mm. obviously, because that's how they differ. Maybe a slower rate of mutations because you need more energy for the deuterium to do so. But from these experiments, they deduced that when the hydrogen jumps, my best friend, wait, what happened there? Oh. Oh, podcast intrusion by the brother. That's okay. That's okay. We can deal with that. We can so that at the end. deal with anything. Anyways, so when the hydrogen jumps from one base to the other on the opposite um strand, yeah, think about it. It's breaking a whole covalent bond with no energy input. Um, we do thermodynamics. We know yeah. what we're talking about. Hashi yeah, doesn't do chemistry. Did they oh, prove no. this? Is it like a problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lab experiments. Um, right. with the H2O. Oh. It's, it's it's brilliant, and. It can only happen by a quantum tunneling. And mm. when I say, you know, when I said Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism, you're like, hold up. Doesn't that describe wave behavior, electromagnetic waves? Well, that's where the whole quantum thing comes in, wave-particle duality. Mm. It's a particle, it's a wave, it's neither, it's both. Yeah. That, that is, that's the essence of quantum physics. And talking about that more, um, yeah, yeah. You know how I was talking about the whole speed of light thing, the whole yeah. star? I was thinking about it, and well, maybe Einstein's theory is wrong. E equals mc squared. I mean, they they proved this with spinning mirror experiments. Do you remember? I think we were about in year six or something. I remember it came in the news, and I was like, no, no, you can't be disregarding Einstein like that. This guy wrote four papers in one year. Genius. But there's this thing called um, quantum entanglement. You know, the whole spooky yeah. talking from a distance. Yeah, yeah. two electrons with opposite spins, with spins, yeah. you know, essential unit of information. Yeah. Opposite sides of the world, they still retain the opposite spins, which means they're communicating from that distance, which is faster than the speed of light. And this has been proven in um in lab experiments. But the thing is about quantum physics, and this is going to work. But you hadn't told me. Going back to the quantum entanglement, how do you like? Do you really? I, I don't really actually fully understand it. I don't think no one fully understands it but do you like have an idea oh yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. so well you have to generate um this whole thing using a fast triplet reaction yeah and you get a pair of lone pairs all right but then you get a pair of actually free radicals which is yeah. quite great and when you have a free radical because when you have a lone pair the spins cancel out because yeah. with one electron you got a plus half spin and with the other one in the same orbital you got a minus half spin Right? They cancel out. And that's the whole essence of how MRI works, because you've got the whole spins and everything. And if you just have a, a radical, it's just going to spin in one direction. And so it has a magnetic effect. 
So I think it's this magnetic interaction, which is in fact how a robin navigates using a magnetic field, the magnetic field of the Earth. How on Earth does it go from European country to the Mediterranean? How does it know where to migrate? Magnetic yeah. reception. We talked about this. It's brilliant. Yeah, it was just really it's amazing. So it, it's almost as if the electrons are still together, but they're not, which which is brilliant because this quantum entanglement, which has been proven by numerous experiments. I want to go into the whole experiment thing. Hashim, you're really going to like this. This is next level theoretical stuff. But um, so the electrons, when, yeah, wait, what was I talking about? <laughs> quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement, 100%. So <laughs> it's been a long day, man. It's been a long day. What can I say? So, yes, spinning in opposite directions. Yeah, it's the whole, um, yeah, it's the Robin thing flying down to the Mediterranean. Yeah. It just links with everything. Use quantum physics to navigate. But the problem with quantum entanglement and you saying that it transfers information faster than the speed of light, well, you can't really transfer information because as soon as you interrupt one of the particles, it breaks the entanglement, doesn't it? So I think that's where it comes in. Apparently, isn't quantum entanglement not really a transfer of information, rather it's just... I don't know, it does, it does, it does. It completely disregards. That's why... Einstein didn't want to believe in it. He yeah, didn't Einstein was completely opposed to because it wasn't just because he found it difficult to understand. He didn't like it because it disregarded his famous theory. Mm. So I think there's some scientific bias here. Now, I'm I'm not trying to insult my good man Albert, but <laughs> you know, I feel like he was quite discreet about this whole. He called it spooky calling or something from distance. He called it like a yeah some spooky thing. Yeah. It but then it is, if you think about it. And this this whole quantum entanglement thing actually happens in the brain. Mm. I, I was reading some research papers, and there was one on algae, and they found evidence of um, quantum entanglement. And I'm not sure how they linked it to brain microtubules, but they plausibly did. So, but the main thing, the main quantum effect we're seeing here, something called quantum coherence. Yeah. So. Oh, it's not the easiest to explain, but it's more like a particle diverging into a wave, waveforms diverging back in, and then converging back into the particle. Mm. It's, it's sort of like that is really basic outline. It's really basic, but it's basically how photosynthesis can occur, why it is so efficient. Why is it 99% efficient? Yeah. If you have electrons bouncing everywhere, it's not going to be efficient. It takes all the possible pathways and stuff, everything, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's almost like the fifth dimension. Because yeah. the fifth dimension is like a probabilist, like, it's almost like, it's like a map of whatever could happen in your life. So if you go to a door, you could either open it or close it. In the fifth dimension, it shows both possibilities and what happens. And I feel like it's like that with the whole electron. Yeah, I think the whole of quantum physics is just like probabilistic, isn't it? Like the, the, the yeah. underlying thing of just quantum physics is probability and statistics. It's, be it's beautiful because it's quantum mechanics, but it's statistical, statistical mechanics. We're, yeah, ironing, we're ironing out the difference between statistics and mechanics. And this kind of comes back to your, well, your essay, Biocalculus kind of essay, didn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I tried to chuck in a bit of that. Yeah, I, I think I, I took on too much. I took on too much of that essay. It's all random, absolutely random stuff. Mm. But obviously, I'm very proud of the product. And product. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Thanks, man. Complimenting me always. What can I say? My bro. So with this whole quantum coherence, that's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle of how it works in uh, microtubules. Because you're like, OK, why can't it ha happen like anywhere else? Why microtubules? Because microtubules are symmetrical structures. Yeah. I mean, surely, Hashim, you, you probably explore a lot of symmetry when it comes to your computer science. Surely. Mm. Symmetrical yeah. models are the best. Mm -hmm. So, um, have you heard of E8? E8, not sure. The bosonic um, string theory is um, it's, it's a beautiful structure. Um, what they use, they use it to narrow down the 26 dimensions to 10 dimensions, so it's more easily working. And I think 10 dimensions is either M theory or superstring theory. But with regards to symmetrical structures, um, it can prefer, it can preserve quantum coherence because if you want quantum effects to cut to occur, you want quantum coherence to be preserved. If it wasn't preserved, the quantum effect wouldn't last for long enough for it to be experienced as a conscious moment. 
So you need this microtubule environment, which is why Stuart Hameroff just wrote back to Penrose after he wrote The Emperor's New Mind, and he was like, okay, what about microtubules? So, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this, um, another debate thing. Karthik, Hashin. Yeah. Attack the whole thing of microtubules. Disregard it. Why do you think it would not work? Why do you think quantum effects would not work in microtubules? Can you remind me quickly how um, what exactly is like the main basis of the um, the, the theory? Like oh, what exactly? Microtubules. Yeah. Um. So basically, they use it because it's a symmetrical structure, yeah. crystalline. That's that's pretty well, much what, it. What types of like um, I haven't done that much research on this, but what type of what types of like experiments have they conducted? Um, um electroencephalographs. Uh, graphs. Yeah. Um. So. That's basically EEG, so hashing, you know, like um, brain scan using gamma yeah. synchrony waves, and they detect elect electrical activity. They did a really good, um, I think it was an RNA or just genetic material study. So after um, a conscious moment, they measured the level of, I think it was RNA in the micro in the microtubule, in no, in the tubulin quantum bit, right? They yeah. measured the RNA content in some part of the brain after conscious moment. And it was found to increase. Oh, seriously? Genetic, genetic testing. But obviously, I don't know how they control variables in that experiment. So it could have just happened by chance. I think this could, because this is, um, wait, when, what year was this again? I think, pretty sure it was relatively recently. Um, well, the birth of the whole theory was uh, about 1996, but it's still yeah. going. It's, it's quite, it's quite new, though. So, Maybe. I'm going to attack it. I'm going to attack it myself. I'm going to be like, microtubules, they, they, you know, microtubules uh, deconstruct and construct again. They, like, have a growing end and a breaking end. They yeah. fall apart and then they grow back again. It's like, how can consciousness be preserved? Because we have memory, right? We remember stuff. Surely those memories would just go to pieces if that happened. But memories yeah. are stored in the macro level where you have of neurons interconnected and then the, the firing of those neurons and circuits level. stores the memories. Yeah, surely the micro level constitutes the macro level. I think there's a difference though with, with consciousness you're thinking about how we think, how we how we think as opposed to perceive and perception I think that ties in memory as well. So with memory and perception I think you could you can really recreate that all because it's at the macro level on the interactions between neurons. Whereas with percept with with consciousness, sorry, that's actually how you think, and I think that's what you're talking about when you're talking about the microtubules and the quantum, the, the quantum side of it all. I've got something to puzzle you. I know you didn't do the Cambridge Chemistry Challenge, Ashim, so this might be harder for you. But mm. I'll, th I'll throw this to Karthik, and you can interject if you want, because we had, you know, for our chemistry teacher in year eleven, genius like. He, he went over some of this stuff, which is actually A-level uni content. So, you know, a flip in a quantum position, you know, um, a superposition, right? A superposition. It's a whole, it's all the possible states. Yeah. Um, what do you call it? Um, superimposed on one, kind yeah. of. So, what you can do is you can flip between superpositions. Mm. You can flip between quantum states, sorry. You can flip between quantum states. And that's how they're saying consciousness uh, arises. So I'll link this to Hashim's computing. You know bytes, you either have like zero or one, binary, zero, yeah. one. And you can constitute literally anything on a digital computer. Because we're not talking about analogs here. We're not, we're not about that continuous variable stuff, are we? We're going discrete. So we're talking about the whole binaries, yeah. one, constituting everything. And the same, think about the quantum super, um, quantum positions flip from one side zero flip to the other one obviously it's more con um it's different from that which is why quantum computing is amazing because you can have a overlap um the superposition which could count as two so you, do you don't only have zero and one you have two as well but if you have these flips something needs to cause these flips so they looked into it and it was the tubulin a little protein tubulin that was flipping you have alpha you have beta right it was flipping and obviously you want to you know you want to delve deeper into the tubulin. So they noticed it was benzene molecules. Do you remember benzene hashim? It was that hexagon with a circle in the side, the delocalized structure. Do you remember that from GCSE? Yep. 
Yeah. So if it's delocalized, how on earth is an electron move like an electron movement? How is that meant to cause a flip in the superposition and thus generate conscious activity? It's delocalized. Because it's all it's the whole London forces thing. If you cause a switch in the fluctuation of the electric dipole, the instantaneous um, um, instantaneous induced dipole, yeah. right? That would cause a flip in the yeah. position, the quantum state. But if it's delocalized, how on earth does this happen? <laughs> if they put this in the chemistry, the Cambridge chemistry challenge, oh my god! <laughs> well, is it is it actually quantum or is it an uh, an approximation of quantum? This one's this one's actually quantum. Mm. Wait, so maybe quantity. Think of think about quantity. But surely in one benzene molecule you would not get a quantum quantum flip. No way. It's delocalized. But how many benzene molecules would it take for there to be a quantum flip? Bruh. What would this cause though? What would the flip do? Um, flip would um cause a change in the quantum um quantum state of the tubulin. It'd flip it, right? Yeah. And it's like the whole binary zero one. So the answer is four. So initially they put one benzene ring in their whole theory, but it looks like you know, I guess a bit of A level chemistry slipped and they forgot about the whole, you know, delocalized structure. When they when you bring four into the equation, then it works out. So I think it's phenomenal that everything adds up. You've got these whole benzene, four, four times benzene, um, hydrophobic pockets, quantum coherence, its interconnectivity. I think a quantum theory is plausible for our consciousness. You just, we just need to advance quantum theory. And that's what I want to do when I do But then if, if quantum theory is behind that, then surely you'd be able to you would be able to replicate consciousness exactly in computers then with quantum no, no, computing. No, quantum mechanics has that issue. Um, the two separate things that don't join. The Schrodinger equation and the collapsing of the wave function. There's no correlation. Mm. So we need to advance quantum theory. We need to... Schrodinger was a genius. I, I don't know how we're going to advance from a Schrodinger equation. Actually, Wait, but... so you know the tubulin um, protein? Involved yeah. in the, yeah. So we know we kind of clarified that um, that evolution's probably like played a part in the progression of this consciousness between like like more primitive organisms. How yeah. do you think like consciousness improved? What do you think happened there? Um, I'm actually I haven't um analysed the microtubule structures of other organisms. I mean I've looked at a squid brain. And what I can say from that, it's actually spread out throughout the body. Mm. But what we have with our microtubules is we don't have gap stop. Um, they're like um, at the end of each microtubule is is capped, so it can't fall apart in the brain. But in the rest of the body, it's not capped, so your microtubules keep falling apart, reforming. So maybe their microtubule structures kept falling apart. There were no stop functions and. Therefore, their quantum, their their unconscious experience is not as advanced as ours. But maybe it's just neuronal circuits, man. Maybe, maybe quantum theory and your, you know, orthodox computing can go hand in hand. Okay, you know the whole easy problem. You got your neurons that can explain yeah. the basics. I guess, the, it's, I guess it's the, just um, quantum. Kind of the same in all organisms, but just like a like a more intricate and complex neural network in different. Hashin, tell me about Connectome, because I know you're really passionate about that book. Is it that um, higher brain activity comes around from more interconnectedness between neurons? Like, um, yeah, nuclei, nuclei, so different nuclei in the brain, you know, groups of neurons. Maybe your lateral nucleus to your primary visual cortex, number 17. Is it more interconnected? Is it? Is that how it works? Is that how higher intelligence arises from better connectedness? So I read an article about dyslexia. And the reason they find it difficult is because it's not because of the number of neurons. It's not because of brain size. I mean, we all knew that. 
It was never because of brain size, not in your eyes. Yeah, phrenology was like, didn't people, people used to think that phrenology and they kind of um, correlated brain size with more intelligence, but then actually like... Pseudoscience um, at its finest, man. They used yeah, to, it is. For large people... So doing like tons of experiments and stuff, um, they found that phrenology was not at all a reliable kind of study. Just, the whole history of neuroscience is... You know, like Descartes, you, you've heard of this philosopher, come on, René, my boy René, René Descartes. Oh, uh, I mean, I understand why he thought of it, but you know the pineal gland? It's right. It's quite an elusive P-shaped gland. Um, Where is that? Um, so it secretes uh, melatonin. That's yeah. part of what it does, makes you sleep. Yeah. But it's, it's not been discovered yet. And he thought that the pineal gland was the seat of the rational soul. There's people with the whole mind-body problem. Where's the soul sit? Well, people used to think it used to circulate around in the ventricles of the brain. The ventricles of your brain is like a hole in the brain where your cerebrospinal fluid circulates. But Descartes, he thought the pineal gland was where it was, you know, situated. So the whole history of neuroscience is just phenomenal. Yeah, so I guess it's just the whole history of neuroscience is shrouded with, like, just confusion because... And just because we like humans, humans have always been like confused by the brain. If you think about it, it's just kind of a mystery to us. And if you think about it, now you have neuroscience, a hundred thousand people literally dedicating their lives to neuroscience, but we, we don't have like a subject for the kidney. You don't have kidney science, do you? Yeah, you don't have adrenal gland science, yeah, you have pulmonary science, yeah. <laughs> you know, neuroscience, like the brain is like, but what if? The whole so, idea of searching for uh, consciousness is futile, and we'll never be able to do it. What if we just? I agree with that. I agree with that. But what if it's that we're too low level to ever understand it, and we're just to... destined to constantly search? Well, I'd say we say the brain is the most important organ because we're controlled by our brain. So the brain is the most important organ, says the brain. So maybe our intelligence isn't good enough to ascertain what consciousness is. That's the brain's fault. Think about it. But I think it's a good academic exercise. When you have theoretical physicists dedicating their life to all these hypothetical experiments, I don't see why us um, biologists and you computer scientists can't do the same. Yeah. I guess well, that's it's why. a combination of like physics and quantum physics, everything physics and like the other sciences. Because I'm guessing physics and maths are like the basis of it all. And one thing, I mean, actually, one, one thing I'd argue with is um, you got, you know, people with neurological disorders where they've got altered states of consciousness. Let's say they're in a vegetative state. They've had mm. an we, we If we understand consciousness, we can bring them back. Just, yeah, by exciting people right me, me and me and Carter were talking about medical symposiums I'm, I'm sorry you're not invited to medical symposium fashion <laughs> so, yeah, you're not you're not in with the squad but um you're talking about repairing brain tissue it's, it's so many ethical you know so many ethical considerations you have to take into account because people with limbic system lesions are more likely to actually commit suicide so, these limbic regions could we prevent them from causing suicide? We don't know. I don't think we'll find That's from Igor's typing, Hashim. Yeah. Just typing. He's typing? Oh, I was trying to keep it quiet, my bad. Right, you got to whisper when you're doing the typing, then it's quiet. Or whisper with my fingers. Yeah. Sneaky, man. Tiptoe with your fingers. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, guys, I think. This book that I'm reading, Connectome at the moment, I'm only like a quarter of the way through. But like, I think it's going to go like delve into this kind of theories about perception, consciousness and everything. And um, yeah, at the moment, it's kind of focusing on like, um, like the action, like the actions of neurons and how um, like all the neurons are interconnected and how it can, like it like perception and the ability to like perceive things like arises. Um, but like, um, I I'm, I really recommend the book to you guys. Um, I'm still reading at the moment, but it, it looks really good. So if Wait, you want to, like... yeah, hundred percent. 
hundred percent. We got, we got, we got to do these book reviews and everything. Passion. You know, you're talking about a convoluted uh, neural network. Yeah. Because most of this um podcast we've been talking about, um, we we haven't been talking about AI so much, but we've been we've been talking about neural networks with regards to the actual neural circuits of the brain. So we've taken it a level further. And I just wanted to add to that by taking away from the quantum theory and going towards an Indian university, IIT. I don't mean the Indian university. I mean integrated information theory. Sorry to call you there. So integrated information theory is a theory of consciousness, but it is. It's so different. And it's very flawed, but I think it has some sense in it. So it goes with the same argument which um, Carthy would find in the connectome. Oh, um, it's not about the amount of neurons. It's about the interconnectedness. So you have the cerebral cortex, right? Not that many neurons, but very interconnected. Then you've got the cerebellum, literally little cerebrum, chilling at the back, right? Little. It's got a really high surface area to volume ratio, so it's got loads of neurons packed in, man. Loads, I'm not joking. But it's not very interconnected. I mean, it's only linked to the rest of the brain via the ponds, the bridge. So, um, and, and the thing is, the cerebrum, right, it has a, a higher consciousness than the cerebellum. But the cerebellum has more neurons. Oh. It's all due to the interconnectedness. Mm. But, he, he, okay, so have you got a book in front of you? Have Dude. you got a book? Or a piece of paper, anything? Yeah. Alright. This, this is going to sound crazy. Okay. Look at the book. Yeah. Um, try to have a conversation with the book. Alright? Alright, okay, okay. Don't actually, but... Do you think the book's conscious? Well, obviously, for us, we would say no. Yeah, I'd say no as well. Actually, what about you, man? Computer scientists. Thinking. I'd say no as well. Yeah. If you okay. find consciousness you know, as a response to... Do you know what IIT says? It what? says the book is more conscious than you. <laughs> In what way? Well, it has this thing called phi, which it um, calculates um, the level of consciousness. Phi function. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, it, it, inanimate objects are more conscious than us, apparently, according to it. Which which brings sci-fi into the whole thing again. It's imagining, you know, a pan-psychic universe where everything is conscious. And we're like, okay, so surely if we arrange atoms in the right way, we could make a conscious human being. But there's definitely a flaw to that. We're missing some vital forces, they used to call it, like in the thing. But if we're ascribing consciousness to electrons, what does that say about us? Are we just a mass of electrons? Protons, neutrons, neutrinos. What do you think? Is that all we are, according to IIT? I mean... It's, it's philosophically weak. I mean, I think this is the consciousness kind of like the bridge between um, kind of... Because like kind of supernatural and kind of natural because I'm getting like people... This could easily go on to um, religious views as well. And like... I'm not, I don't want to go there now, but like people may believe that there, there could be an external being, but like that's the thing. It's so like, so un, like misunderstood and so like not misunderstood, just not understood at all. And that's worth like tons of theories could explain it, but like we just, we're, we're not like that close at all to figuring it out. There's a lot of stuff yeah. we have to tackle. We have to find the answers to. All right, one thing before we finish. Um, you know words, right? They describe stuff. Yeah. You have this philosopher. It's called Wittgenstein. So, mm. And he demolished all of Western philosophy. Because what do Western philosophers do? They seek meanings in words. What is the meaning of life? That kind of stuff. But life's not a natural thing. You're just ascribing it to something, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a word. Um, I, I know Hashim takes um, Spanish A-levels. So I don't want to insult him too much. 
But if you, so consciousness is just a word. Maybe we're just thinking too hard. We're not. Maybe we're not conscious right. at all. Yeah, I think we're just exploring it the wrong way. Yeah. But obviously, we don't um, follow Wittgenstein's whole theory of philosophy. We follow Western philosophy. Mm. But it's definitely something to think about. Anyways, anyway. thank you for listening yeah. to Scientific Utopia. This is our first podcast. I have no idea how long it was, but it was. We're gonna cut that bit out. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was. It was long. Yeah. <laughs> thank you guys for watching. Thanks guys for listening, and thank thanks you guys for Hashim. Thank you for Hashim. We appreciate it, man. Yeah, amazing input from you. All right. Cheers for listening and have a good day. Bye. Bye.